in imitating Christ's humility, and we read these words that Paul would write to the Philippians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete and by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Mike. Just keep that open. We'll be looking at that together. Um, For my peers in ministry and also for many of the the students that I've been working with and the younger people I've been ministering to over the last 10 years, uh, a figure in terms of a a global ministry figure who really has cast a shadow um, across the the kind of reformed evangelical circles is a pastor named Mark Driscoll, um, an American-based West Coast Seattle pastor who in 1996 founded a church with a group of others of you know, a handful in a living room, which then grew across 15 years to be 13 churches in five different states in America with a global millions podcast reach, extraordinary prodigal talent, uh, charismatic preacher, uh, driving leader, enormous influence in the, the reformed evangelical ministry scene around the world. In the last year or so, uh, Mark Driscoll's ministry has been uh, increasingly tainted by um, scandals of one kind or another. Um, so much so that uh, he's, within the last few weeks, resigned from his leadership at that church that he started. Um, and just a, a day or so ago, that church has announced that it will disband its, its network, its empire, if you like, of Mars Hill churches into a series of independent churches. Scandals. Now, if you don't know the story of Mark Driscoll, you might think, oh, okay, is there a secretary? Is that what's going on? Um, But those close to that situation say that a a couple of things have actually been key. One of them is a kind of pragmatism, a doing whatever needs to be done to grow at the cost of principle. And we can all be like that, can't we? That uh, this will help, this will benefit, this will grow, this will work, and so let's just do it without really slowing down enough to ask, hang on, what are the principles here? So pragmatism, 
is one of the things that those close to that seem to say has caused the problems of a kind of scandal around money management, around marketing practices, around those sorts of issues. That's one side of it. But the other side of it that's particularly relevant to this passage today and is a very big warning to all of us as Christians and particularly as leaders here amongst our, our fellowship at the branch is pride. That a lot of the scandal surrounding that ministry was scandal surrounding behaviour of prideful, bullying, domineering leadership. And again, those who are driven, motivated, capable, charismatic, it can be so easy to let boldness become bullishness and become bullying, can't it? It can be so easy to let drivenness and inspiration become driving, dominating behaviour. And so those very things which can lead to meteoric growth can also lead to scandal and uh, and dissolving of of an otherwise fruitful ministry. So as we turn here to Philippians today, I want us to ponder on those things. How can we make sure in our lives, in our families, in our work and in our church and ministry, how can we make sure that what drives it is not simply the outcome, the growth, the benefit, doing whatever it takes, but how can we make sure that what drives our ministry truly is, uh, it's founded in what Jesus has done, you know, that that's its basis and it's motivated by Jesus' glory, but that actually the method as well. It's founded in Jesus, it's motivated by Jesus' glory, but the whole method of our lives and ministries, the whole way we go about it, the whole way we live it out, the principles and the workings and the pragmatic, you know, what we do tomorrow, that that is shaped by the ministry of Christ. For here we have this beautiful passage about Jesus' um, incarnation and his glorification. Beautiful passage. Very famous part of the Bible. But it's a passage not mainly written to explain why Jesus died. The passage doesn't actually, verses 5 to 11, it doesn't really say why Jesus died. Because this passage is not here to talk about why Jesus died, the, the sacrifice for the salvation. But rather, verse 5, this is written as an example to us. We should have the same mind as Christ. So if you've founded your life and ministry on what Jesus did for us, then live out your life and ministry with that same mind as he works himself out in us. The passage begins with four ifs. 2 verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then. Four ifs. And that that then leads to, he then says, then do these things in verse 2. Now, if, in verse 1, this if is not an uncertain if. It's not sort of like, now, you guys over here, if you have these things, then verse 2's for you. You guys over here, you you don't have these ifs, so you can just have a little snooze. (laughs) It's not that kind of if as if he's sort of singling out particular kinds of Christian. It's an if that really is a since. If, as you do have, then. That's what he's saying. So you might want to uh, kind of read that verse, saying, therefore, since you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have any comfort from his love. It's that sort of sense of if 
as you do have then. He's drawing us in, saying, you've got this, don't you? Yep. And if you have this, yes, I do. And if you have this, yes, mm, mm. And we're, we're beginning to do that kind of pew moo that you do when a preacher really gets under your skin. And, and he says that, and we go, mm, you know, that. He's, he's getting us to do that sort of pew moo and go, yes, yes, amen, preach it, brother, then. Verse 2, you get it? Mm. Um, so that's what he said. The first is, we are in Christ and have encouragement from being in Christ, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. You see, a Christian is not far away from Christ, as if we just believe things about him back then in the past. It's not just we obey rules that he's given us. It's not even just that we have a personal relationship with him. No, no, a Christian is in Christ There is a union with him. There is a bound to him in the most intimate way. I am united with him. I am in him. All his riches are my riches. All his blessings are my blessings. His death was for me. And if I have all that, he says, I will be encouraged by that. And then that will change the way I live. Verse 2. United with Christ and the encouragement that comes from that is his first if. The second if is the love of Christ. If any encouragement from being united with Christ, verse 1, if any comfort from his love. Now, these all overlap a great deal, don't they? I'm united with him in his love. (laughs) And I'm encouraged by being in him and the benefits of his love that comes from being in him. He has loved me so much. He's loved me so much that verse 6, although he was in very nature God, he didn't grasp onto that, but made himself nothing for me and for my salvation. He loved me when I was unlovely. He loved me when I was his enemy. He was merciful and compassionate to me when I was defiant and responsible before his judgment seat. He was humbly serving me when I was prideful and pragmatic. What comfort I get from that love. And if I'm comforted by that love, then, verse 2, it will change the way I live. United in Christ and encouraged by that, the love of Christ and comforted by that. And thirdly, fellowship with the Spirit. If any, fellowship in the Spirit. It's the same word as 1 verse 5, which speaks about the fellowship in the gospel that Paul enjoys with the Philippians. A partnership, a, a we've gone into business together, Paul is saying. We're in the business of the gospel together. We're in fellowship. And so just as in 1 verse 5, Paul and the Philippians have gone into business together in the gospel, they're in gospel fellowship. Well, 2 verse 1 says actually we're bound up God's gone into business with us. We're in fellowship with his spirit. He is the way, um, look at the way 2 verse um, uh, 12 puts it. 2 verse 12, the very end of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 4 verse 13, it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We're bound in fellowship with, we've linked arms with, God the Spirit. If God is at work in you, fellowshipping within you in his great work of saving, transforming, leading into godliness and doing the work that he'll bring to completion on the day of Christ, well, that's going to change the way we live. 
verse 2. And the last if there is tenderness and compassion. Now, sorry if this is confusing to say, but this if really is a then, isn't it? This is the Christian life, tenderness and compassion. So why is he saying this is an if? Well, I suppose you could say he's saying, if God has already begun his work in you, softening you, moving you to compassion, making you gentle and merciful and kind, if that's already begun, if he's encouraged you in Christ and comforted you with his love and is working in you by the Spirit, if that is already moving you to tenderness and compassion, well, then keep on going. Let it be more and more and more. Yeah? The work of Christ, those who are united with him, loved by him, in fellowship with his Spirit, the work of that is that we are softened, we are moulded in gentleness, in mercy, the four ifs. Now, let me just stop for a second. There's a, there's a little application point we can draw straight away here. And that is, if you appreciate what you have in Jesus, it will move you to live for him. That's just a little thing to note. As we grasp what it means to be in Christ, and you're encouraged by that, as we um, are comforted by the love of Christ... As we recognise the fellowship that we have in the spirit of Christ, as that will begin to make us tender, compassionate, all the things in verse 2. Dwell upon what you have in Jesus. That's why we sing together. That's why preachers preach to us. That's why we discuss and urge each other on in our small groups, is that we may grasp what God has done for us. So four ifs, which lead then to four thens. Verse 2. If, 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 if then, verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in uh, spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others more than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. First he says, make my joy complete, verse 2. Make my joy complete. You see, the, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't just say, converted, done, and jump on the plane. Uh, his goal is not just, I've built an institution, church started, done. No, his heart, his joy, his satisfaction is 1 verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. That's what gives him joy. Or 1 verse 9 and following, that their love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight. They may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. That they may, 1 verse 27, conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What fulfills his desire and his longing and his ambition and therefore gives him godly joy and delight is for Christians have come to Christ to live out their Christian faith more and more. The goal of his evangelism is discipleship. The Apostle Paul got the Great Commission. Jesus doesn't just say, go and get converts, does he? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore get decisions. Get people to bow their heads, pray the prayer and raise their arms so we can see who prayed it. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily, But that's not the end goal. 
the end goal of, of a Christian ministry that Paul, Paul gets, the Apostle Paul gets, what really gets him excited. You know, I, I find this often with the real evangelists. Often the real evangelists are a little bit reluctant to call a conversion. They'll go, yeah, that person seems to have started following Christ, but, you know, we'll see. A little like Jesus at the end of John chapter 2. Have you picked up on that verse where it says, many put their faith in Jesus, but Jesus didn't put his faith in them because he knows what's in a man. That Jesus goes, yeah, there's, there's a kind of believism that may not be true discipleship. No, no, what the evangelist really wants to see is the genuine heart, encouraged by being in Christ, comforted by his love, uh, fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, tender, compassionate, living out the Christian life. And that is seen, second then, in like-mindedness. Look again at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. It's a similar thing to verse 27 of chapter 1. 1 verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. There's a kind of diversity that is very wonderful. Yeah, The different cultures... Countries, nations, ages that we enjoy here at the branch. That is a wonderful thing. There's that kind of diversity which is rich and wonderful. But we can be tempted to then think diversity of any kind is always good, especially in our culture. Um, I definitely see it amongst our students that we begin to think diversity in and of itself is kind of the greatest good. But although diversity of personality and taste and culture is a wonderful thing, moral diversity, spiritual diversity is not. Oh, isn't that a wonderful thing? We have some people here who are tender and compassionate and merciful and others that are cruel to animals. Wonderful richness of our society. No. We want to say at that point, diversity on that matter is not good. Yeah? Or isn't it a wonderful fellowship we have here? Some serve the living and true God and others bow down to idols that our hands have made. (laughs) Following all kinds of weird superstitions. Following things that are not God and ignoring the one who made them. No. You see, it's easy to embrace diversity so much that it becomes an absolute. An open mind is good, but you can open your mind up so much it's no different to an open sewer. In fact, clear values and truth can guard tolerance and can protect good diversity. It's because we value others and hold to the truth that respecting those different to us, well, that truth enables us to have unity and diversity. You see, Christians can buy into this sort of thing, love diversity for its own sake. And we find now with Christians amongst the uni students that if there's anything you want to do, you can always Google it and find a Christian somewhere in the world who tells you it's okay. (laughs) If there's anything you want to believe, just, again, ask Pastor Google and he will find someone for you who tells you that it's perfectly fine. And it can be tempting for us to say, well, that's good. I mean, you believe that and I believe this. Who am I to say? It's a lot of grey areas, really. Um... Uh, 
and celebrate that as somehow a good thing. But no, 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 we need to say there are some truths, there are some loves, there are some spirits, there are some minds that are good and right. And there are some truths, some ways of living, some lifestyles, some minds which are wrong. It's good for Christians to agree on the truth. It's good for Christians to agree on God's ways. It's good for Christians to agree on God's purpose in the world. It's good for Christians to live the same way, have the same loves, own the same purpose, think the same things. That's not a a kind of an enforcing, imposing, scandalising thing. That's good. It leads to joy. It leads to harmony. Now, he's not especially interested here. I find it hard to find anywhere in the Bible that's especially interested in simply institutional unity. You know, there's a particular kind of Christian who says, what we need is all the Christians of Launceston to kind of go on a march to the gorge. That's unity. And we can wave some Jesus flags. That's unity. Or what we need is to get all the Christians into a big barn together and have a sing together. That's unity. I'm not really sure how much value that has, to be honest. Um, and I, I can't find much of that in the, in the New Testament at all. This sort of... Um, it's almost a political unity, isn't it? It's an exhibitionist unity. No, 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 no. Unity is not whether we're all in a barn or we're all in a march or whether a bunch of church leaders with church leader hats all sign a document. No, no, no. It's unity of mind, unity of love, unity of purpose, unity of... of yeah, that's the unity that matters. Pursue that like-mindedness branch. Work together in one mind, one life, one heart. And then um, thirdly, no selfishness. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now the next one after this is really the, the positive version of that. The barrier to unity is selfishness, ambition, vanity, conceit. What a sleazy list. Yuck. Vile stuff. But that's the human heart. That's you and me, that stuff. Do you distrust yourself? Are you frightened of what you might be capable of? Lord, spare me from myself. The uh, historical novelist Gore Vidal once said, when my friend succeeds, a little part of me dies. Selfish ambition poisons us and is toxic for the church. No selfish ambition. Flee selfish ambition and instead, number four, pursue humility. The end of verse three there says, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, verse four, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Here's the antidote, here's the anti-venom, Here's the thing we should pursue. He describes humility in three ways. Value others above yourself. Look to the interests of others. Have the mind of Christ. Now when you hear humility, don't think just a sort of awe shucks sort of person. You know, maybe someone from a Charles Dickens novel. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, my lord. Oh, wouldn't know, sir. Your humble servant. Don't just think that kind of thing, you know. Don't think the person who goes, oh, I'm just a duffer. Don't, oh, there you go, just me, you know. Silly Billy, you know. 
oh, I'm not that good at tennis, actually, and then they're actually awesome, you know. It's not, it's not as if it's that kind of... And don't just think uh, it's a, a muted personality. Some of us are just more quiet, retiring people. Uh, and some of us are more forthcoming. Some of us come from Korea. Some of us come from South Africa. You know. But it's not as if South Africa... Africans. <laughs> it's not as if you can't have a humble South African or an arrogant Korean, is it? <laughs> you can have the most resentful, bitter, angry, introverted, meek, quiet person, can't you? All under the surface. You can have an energetic, outgoing, uh, motivated, humble extrovert, can't you? So, so it's not about just the, the window dressing of culture or personality. Yeah? It's, don't, don't limit humility to that. No, no, no. It's, it's the mind. It's the motive. It's the heart. It's not me. It's not myself. It's not my ambition, not my agenda, not my honour, not my needs, but yours. Your needs, your value, your worth, your well-being. It's not about losing your personality. I don't think it's even about losing ambition in every sense of the word. For someone to do the wonderful good around cancer research or brain surgery or missionary work, there needs to be a certain kind of drive and ambition there, I would think, but sanctified by a heart of loving servant-heartedness, a concern for others, so that even in my plans, even in my desires, I'm working them out in service, in deference, in care for the other. Yeah? And that, he says, is the mind of Christ. Look what he says about who Jesus was. Verse 6, he was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped something to be used to his own advantage. He was in very nature God is who he was. He was equal with God is who he was. As we, uh, we heard read from the Nicene Creed, the way they summarise it is he's light from light, God from God, begotten, not made. God. The first Christian said Jesus was God, worthy of worship, verse 11. That's who he was, but look at who he became. Verse 6, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's not selfish ambition, is it? It wasn't selfish ambition. But rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He took on a new nature, a human nature. He didn't stop being God. He didn't morph into some hybrid but God the Son added to his divine nature a human nature. And in that new nature took a new status, not of grasping, but of choosing to be nothing, verse 7. Of choosing to serve, verse 7. Of humble obedience, verse 8. He did that for our salvation. But here we're told he did it as an example to us as well. That's the mind of Jesus. What would Jesus do? This. Have this mind, brothers and sisters, 
a mind that says, oh, look, I might be a somebody, but who cares who I am? I might be going places and doing things powerful or wealthy or clever or arty or pretty or, you know, you should see my time in the Bernie 10 or whatever it is that's important to you. You may be somebody, but what matters to you is not who you are and what you're worth, but to humbly serve others. The humble servant says it's a joy for me in all my insignificance to wash up the mugs after church. It's a dignifying thing for me, for all my power and intelligence to wipe the baby's bottom and tuck him up to bed. Yeah? You might just comment quickly that the reason why Jesus died for us, why Jesus humbled himself, it's not the emphasis of this passage, but we do need to touch on it. There might be some here who don't really know much about the Christian message, so we do need to touch on it. Why did he do it? Why did he humble himself? Verse 8, he humbled himself as appearance as a man, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Out of humble obedience to God. But why did God want him to die on a cross? Why, when Jesus was about to die and he prayed, if there's any way, take this cup from me. I don't want to die on that cross, but if there's any way, but not my will, but your be done. And why did God say there's no other way? My will is you die on the cross. Why? To do the work of salvation is why. We could go all the way through the New Testament and see again and again the reason why Jesus died is to die in our place, in our stead, instead of us, for us, to forgive us. The wonderful act of service, a service that only God could do, serve us to the limit that he died that we might live. A Christian is someone who has been waited on by God the Son, who has been served, has been helped, in a way that only God could. Have you ever been to one of those kind of parties or hotels or something and you just don't know what's for free and what's not? Have you been to that situation? And uh, you don't want to ask, of course, because if they say you have to pay for it, then you're in the awkward situation of going, oh, no, 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 I just wanted if it was free. <laughs> this is for free. God freely. You don't have to pay for this one. The tab covers this. God for free offers to anyone, any wicked soul, any proud soul, anyone who's wandered from him and is trying to come back, free pardon. As an example to us now who accept that pardon, do I live likewise? Paul gives himself as an example in 2 verse 17. His life is like pouring out a drink offering for the good of others' salvation, 2 verse 17. Or Timothy in 2 verse 20 is, I have no one else like him, Paul says, who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but Timothy looks for the interests of others. Or Epaphroditus 2 verse 30. We should honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. Serve others. Humbly serve. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're worth, what you know, 
serve others. Loving service. I helped out at the school fair yesterday, the Goulburn Street School Fair. And to be honest, I kind of partly did it because I was scared of the school mum who asked me to help. (laughs) And I kind of partly did it because I should do my bit. I sort of had a roster mentality, didn't I? Is that your mentality to serving at church or to serving in your family or to serving in your workplace and your community? Is it... Carl asked me, he's a bit scary. Elizabeth asked me, and she's a bit scarier than Carl. (laughs) (laughs) Or or is it, I should do my bit, you know, I'm part of the club, so I should do my bit. Or is it, I want to serve where God's put me, in my workplace, in my family, in my community, in my neighbourhood, in my church, because I have the mind of Christ. I'll tell you what, this is the last thing. And look at it just quickly. God honours humble service. Glorious humble service is the name of the sermon. And take a look at how much God exalts humble service. Verse 9. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how much God values humility. That's what he exalts above everything else, the humble obedience of his son. That's what God honours, that's what God rewards. Or look at it another way. Who's on the throne of heaven? Who's on the throne of the universe? The humble servant. Not grim, morbid duty, but joy. Not just despairing integrity, well, one must do what one must do. But this is where the world's going. This is what God truly delights in. This is what life's all about. It's right and good and glorious and beneficial. As our Lord, the one who all will one day honour, whether grudgingly in their judgement or joyfully, In their final salvation, he is the humble servant. And that's where our lives are headed. To look forward to that day. Now it's hard, now it's painful, now it's difficult, now we ache, now we're fatigued, now we're sick, now we're ageing, now we're uh, mocked or maligned or we're lonely or we're doing without... But our humble service, our struggle in following the Lord, our efforts together will be one day vindicated. Glorified, exalted, beautiful. And our humble service will find its greater pair in Jesus' humble service and together will be glorified. This, Paul says, in chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown... This is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let's pray. What encouragement we have, our loving Father and our Lord Jesus. What encouragement we have from being in this Christ. What comfort we have from his love for us. Oh God, Holy Spirit, 
We fellowship with you in your work in us, moving us to tenderness and to compassion. Form this mind in us, we pray. Make each one of us look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Lead us, each one, lead us as a fellowship together in this one glorious purpose of humble service. May we be, do much good to others and may we do much eternal good for your glory. And we look forward to that day when we will bow the knee and joyfully confess that Jesus is our Lord to your glory. Amen.